This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Mirab Hussain, an infectious disease physician in Australia. We'll be discussing a case of human neurolarva migraines caused by the Ascarid Ophida scarus robetsi. Welcome, Dr. Hussein. Uh, hi, Sarah. Thanks for inviting me. Your article has gotten a whole lot of media attention. Articles in the press are calling it a brain worm. But I want to start with some basics first. What is Ophida scarus robertsi ascarid? It is a difficult one to pronounce, so it's uh, Ophidescaris robertsii. It's a parasite or a nematode. A nematode means roundworm. They have a distinct red color, and they are predominantly found in pythons, which are definitive hosts. And that means the parasite reaches its full maturity in the esophagus or the stomach of the python. Where are these parasites found globally? So at this stage, the Ophidescaris robertsii parasites are predominantly found in Australia and Papua New Guinea. And is it common for people to get infected with it? It is definitely not common to be found in people. And we have had just the one case for now. Uh, however, if infected, people are considered accidental hosts. What this means is people are not part of the parasite's life cycle. And people have somehow ingested the parasite, and it just continues to grow in that host. We are considered accidental hosts. It is not a typical life cycle of this particular parasite. Okay, so what is a human neural larva migraines, and what are the symptoms? Neural larva migraines is a term that is used to describe a condition. So it's a condition caused by the migration of parasitic larvae. Larvae are immature form of a parasite. So they typically migrate from the intestines into the central nervous system or the brain of a host organism. In terms of symptoms, they can vary, but often include symptoms such as headache, fever, vision problems, seizures, and in many severe cases, they can have cognitive and behavioral disturbances as well. The severity of the symptoms can depend on the number of larvae involved and also the, where they're located in the brain, for example. You just mentioned that people are accidental hosts. How do they get infected with it then? So, so the pythons uh, shed the eggs of Ophidoscaris or Bertsii parasites in their surroundings. And the eggs of the species are very sticky. Uh, if pythons leave the feces on vegetation, the eggs can then be eaten on plants or transferred from hand to mouth during foraging. How serious is it? Can it be fatal? It can be a serious condition in people, depending on the organs they migrate to. They can travel to lungs, liver, spleen, and very, very occasionally brain, making people very unwell. But please note that Ophidescaris robertsia infections are actually not common in humans to cause disease. Since it's not common in people, is there a test for it? Unfortunately, again, given how rarely they infect people, there is no simple test. I'll put it that way, to identify it. But there are other various indirect diagnostics that can aid in the search of this one. There are blood tests and CAT scans that we can do. But once these worms are identified in people after very thorough investigation, they are then sent to the lab for identification. And very smart machines do gene sequencing in order to identify what of a scary species we're dealing with. Okay, and once it's identified, what about treatment? Can it be treated? And if so, is there any recommended treatment? 
say we have ivermectin or albendazole. There are two antihelminths that can be used to treat this infection. These medications have, have also been used to treat other similar roundworms that are very well known to infect people. I've heard with other brain larvae and parasites that it's dangerous, actually, to kill them inside the brain. Is this accurate? They are difficult to be killed, but it's not completely untreatable. There have been cases in previously where there have been other parasites found in the brain. I don't know if you've heard of the term neurocysticosis, but, but they have been treated with, with anti-helminths as well, or anti-parasitic medications. Your study is about a case of a person with this parasite in Australia, and apparently the patient got it from a carpet python somehow. I think you said these parasites are commonly found in this species. Is there only this species or other reptiles? So these are commonly found in carpet pythons, to our knowledge. We have not heard of any other reptiles at this stage, but it is possible. Excluding people as apparently we should mostly, go through the cycle again of how the parasite is maintained? Sure. So the eggs of this parasite, of the Descaris robertsii, are shed in the feces of the python, and they are then consumed by the marsupials like possums, or koalas, etc., and smaller mammals such as rodents. So the eggs then go through different stages of their growth in these smaller animals before getting consumed by the python snakes again, where these parasites reach their full maturity. They become adults, basically. And basically, the cycle is completed within the snake, and the eggs are shed again in the surroundings, and the cycle therefore continues. It can't be transmitted from one reptile to another, then? Uh, no, they aren't directly transmitted from one reptile to other. In, in other words, they aren't contagious. Do environmental conditions have any influence on parasite transmission? So these parasites, like many other parasites, are incredibly resilient and are able to thrive in a wide range of environments. However, there's one study shows that the eggs are resistant to harsh conditions like drought. And basically, they need a little bit of moisture to hatch and you know, grow. So that could be a limiting factor. So if the environment got hotter and drier, it might actually help in this case? Uh, yes, yes. But usually, it's actually very hard to find an environment that you have no moisture at all, if you know what I mean. Ah, I see. How would someone know if they were infected? I guess people will not be able to tell that they are infected with this parasite. But if infected, patients will present with symptoms of chest infection or gastro-like illness, depending on the organs affected. And patients can have increase in eosinophil count. It is a type of white blood cell in the body, in the blood. And once that's raised and based on other symptoms and scans, the doctors will have to go through thorough investigation, basically, in order to come to that diagnosis. Let's talk more specifically about the person who got this parasite in her brain. Tell us a little bit about her, how she got infected, and what prompted her to seek medical attention. Sure. So our patient, who, was, who lives in the coastal part of New South Wales, she presented to the hospital with symptoms of chest infection and diarrhea. Initially, it was thought that she probably just had a community-acquired pneumonia and then given antibiotics. However, the symptoms didn't improve, and she re-presented to hospital for further investigation and management. What tests were done during this initial investigation? 
the patient underwent a lot of investigations. So when she presented, we found that she had a high eosinophil count, which is a type of white blood cell. And, and we performed scans, such as CAT scan, and found abnormalities in the lungs and liver, so basically lesions in the lungs and liver. It did not show worms or anything as such, but she went through other investigations to identify the cause of the high eosinophil count in the blood. She had a biopsy of the lung lesion, which just basically showed eosinophils in the lung tissue, but nothing else to suggest they're parasites. So eventually she was given a diagnosis of hyper eosinophilic syndrome. It is basically a syndrome and usually it's caused by something, but what caused it remained unclear at that stage. We even look for parasite in stool. We look for antibodies to some of the common parasites in the blood, but they all came back negative. She was given immunosuppressive medications to treat this hyperuthenophilic syndrome, including steroids that actually improved her respiratory symptoms. The eosinophil count came down and the changes in the lungs and liver started to disappear as well. How did you eventually find this parasite? So about 18 months later, since her first symptom onset, she saw a doctor for her worsening mood and depression, forgetfulness, that eventually led to obtaining an MRI of her brain. And, and that MRI brain showed an abnormal spot in the frontal part of her brain. So a neurosurgeon at Canberra Hospital performed an operation in order to get a sample from that abnormal part of the brain but instead found an alive and wriggling worm. This was immediately sent to our microbiology lab for further identification. What was the initial reaction to finding it in her brain? I imagine it was a shock. Had anything like that been seen before? Uh, it was definitely an, it was a shock. It was a shock for sure for everyone, including the uh, neurosurgeons who actually pulled it out. So one of my microbiology colleagues, Dr. Wilson, she received a phone call from the theater from one of the surgeons mentioning about this unexpected finding. It was sent to the lab. We had a look under the microscope and it was still moving. It was fascinating. We could not identify the worm immediately, given it did not look like one of the more common worms that infect people. But we sent it to an expert parasitologist whose name is Dr. Dave Spratt, who's got 50 years of experience with many parasites. So he identified it immediately, uh, given its color and other features. So essentially, it was a shock to everyone. Uh, it was a shock to the patient as well, but she took it really well. Was there just the one, or could there be other little ones lurking around in her head? So it was only the one. The neurosurgeon did mention she looked around a little bit, because obviously if she was there already, so she had a look, but she couldn't find any other thing-like structures or anything as such. But having said that, she did a bit of a clean-up just to make sure there's nothing like small eggs still remaining. Ugh. Um, <laughs> what treatment... This <laughs> is like so horrifying. Um, what treatment was used, and did she eventually recover? The removal of the worm was the treatment in this patient. However... In order to kill the other eggs and larvae that I mentioned, which obviously weren't visible and could have been hiding in the body, which were not obvious at that stage. I mean, we knew that there were, looking back, we knew that this parasite probably moved around through the lung and the liver. So who knows where else could, have, could it have been hiding? So based on that, we decided to give her two anti-parasitic medications that I've mentioned before. So ivermectin which has very good penetration to the brain and the central nervous system. And we also gave her four weeks of albendazole. Her, in terms of recovery, she improved. She remained in the community. She's 
still well and there is no recurrence of respiratory or any gastrointestinal symptoms. And we have been monitoring her, her very, very closely in the clinic. So no brain injury from finding this worm, pulling it out, looking around for eggs? Apart from some neuropsychiatric symptoms, she did not have any physical disability to begin with. So once we've removed it, even after the operation, she did not have any neurological symptoms as such. There were no deficits. And her neuropsychiatric symptoms actually started to improve. If this parasite hadn't been discovered, what would have been the long-term effects? Uh, this is a hard question. Uh, basically, it is a bit unknown because obviously we've not seen this type of parasite before. But, but I presume if, if left untreated, her neuropsychiatric symptoms probably would have continued to deteriorate. And the inflammatory response in the brain due to the worm, if it would have continued to increase, that could have led to other neurological symptoms or disorder. Do you think more cases like this will be recognized because of the attention to your study? There is definitely a possibility and cases may emerge, although very, very, very rare. There are other Ophidescary species, not this particular species I'm talking about, so other species that infect snakes in other countries, especially in Asian countries. Because of how closely we interact with animals and the surroundings, uh, other unknown parasites can start infecting people. I'd like to emphasize that all, not all headache or depression means that there is a worm in the brain. So to the audience out there, I'd like to say not to panic. And if there are symptoms similar to what our patient has had, then you should be seeking expert opinion, such as a doctor or a specialist. Well, I'm, that's really good advice. So on that note, how do... Uh, do we know how she even got this in the first place? Yes, as I was telling you about the eggs that are shared in the python CC. So what we think happened is because she lives in the coastal area, she lived by a lake and there are lots of warrigal greens, this type of a plant that you can actually cook and eat. So, and she liked foraging, so she would collect them, cook them, you know, do stir fries and things like that and eat them. Uh, and she also mentioned after we identified this parasite that she had seen carpet pythons around her where she lived, uh, but she never had direct contact with them. And they're actually quite harmless snakes, carpet pythons. So, uh, so what we think happened was she probably indirectly ingested it, either when she was handling utensils, or collecting them or cooking them and then eating the greens or the vegetation. What? further research do you think is needed? It's a new pathogen, essentially. So given how closely we interact with the animals and the fact that there are a lot of known and unknown parasites out there in our environment, and in the future, we may see many other parasitic infections emerging. And I think we should have the capacity to investigate, manage these infections when they emerge and do further research. Linking on to your study, how would you like this case to be used going forward? So I want our other medical professionals around the world to be aware of this new zoonotic infection and the challenges involved in making a diagnosis. As mentioned, like it, it took 18 months for our patient to finally get that diagnosis. So, and there are similar worms in our environment uh, or pa parasites in our environment that we should be vigilant and ensure early detection, prompt treatment, and effective prevention measures. 
ultimately safeguarding public health worldwide. I did a podcast with a person, Ben Taylor, in October of 2018, who also had a long battle with undiagnosed symptoms, and they turned out to be an eye worm called Loa Loa. That was pretty horrifying, too. Is this parasite similar to that one? I have actually heard, listened to that podcast. It was actually a very good one. But yeah, so Loa Loa is another type of roundworm, and so is Ophidescaris. But there are different. There are so many, you know, families and species. There are different. So the lower lower is contracted after a bite of African deer fly, and the larvae then migrate from the skin to the lungs and the eyes. Whereas Ophidescaris parasites is contracted through oral roots, and their life cycles are very different as well. The intermediate hosts are very different as well. So, I mean, they are similar in ter- terms of the type. There are roundworms, but they are quite different, and the mode of uh, contraction of these are very different as well. Just for our listeners out there who maybe haven't heard the other podcast yet, that was another astounding, horrifying moment when gone through all this long period of no one figuring out what was going on with him. Again, depression and that kind of thing. And then one day he was looking in the mirror and he saw this little worm wiggling around in his eye. Can you imagine? I just like, that was the worst thing ever. <laughs> the whole EID staff is traumatized by it. But uh, now this brain worm is right up there with it. (laughs) (laughs) You never know, there will be other, as I said, like, you know, they they just emerge and we happen to find them out because they, you know, poor patients just just struggle and go through a myriad of symptoms. And it it takes a long time for, for us to actually find something like this, because by then they have actually traveled to other places. Right. And so unexpected. So your article and your study will be a real help, I think. Um, Tell us about your job, where you work, and how you got interested in studying parasites. So I I have recently become a specialist in infectious diseases. Uh, So where I was actually treating this patient and uh, the patient with the office carries infection. And uh, when I was writing the case up, I was an advanced trainee in Canberra Hospital in Australian Capital Territory. I'm currently working at Eastern Health in Victoria, which is also in Australia. In terms of how I got interested, I've always been interested since medical school when I first learned about parasites causing malaria. So that got me interested and they're they're fascinating. And then when I became a doctor, doctor, I got to learn about other interesting parasites and my interest just just grew from there. Uh, This might sound gross, but some parasites are very, very pretty under the microscope. Uh, that's so true of so many of these really <laughs> terrible, awful things that will kill you or cause you such damage when you look at them. They're so pretty. They are very pretty. <laughs> yeah, actually, colorful. Yeah. I actually own um, two or three scarves, that, silk scarves, that uh, are have the designs of one is E. coli. And I don't know what the other two are. And... I don't work in microbiology lab as much, but uh, the times I have spend. I've thoroughly enjoyed my time. Even though they are very, you know, life-threatening diseases and infections, they are very pretty. (laughs) What an interesting conundrum. Um, Okay, so out of all the zoonotic diseases out there, is there one that worries you the most? To be completely honest, I couldn't choose just one. There's been so many zoonotic infections through, you know, over the many, many, many years now. I am concerned about a few, uh, especially when 
you know, they become tough to handle or, you know, reach pandemic stages like the COVID-19 that we've been through. There are other zoonotic diseases such as, uh, you know, Ebola, Zika virus, and they have previously raised significant concerns due to their potential for outbreaks and global impact. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is, you know, zoonotic diseases highlight the interconnectedness of human, animal, and the environmental health, and they underscore the importance of effective public health measures, surveillance, and, and the international cooperation to mitigate their impact. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Hussein. It's been a pleasure. And it was wonderful. Thank you so much again for inviting, and it was an absolute pleasure as well. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the September 2023 article, Human Neural Larva Migraines Caused by Ophida Scaris Rubertsi Ascarid, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.